Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Astrology Now podcast. My name is Christine Rodriguez, and in this segment, it is that time of the year again for us to spend some time focusing on relationships and compatibility in Vedic astrology. And so I believe it was last year that I posted um, a pretty lengthy segment on synastry and compatibility. And I also understand that without having a visual, it can be kind of difficult to follow along. And so in this segment, I'm going to spend some time talking about the hallmarks of a good, positive, healthy relationship, according to the Gottman Institute, along with destructive patterns of relationship. Then we are going to talk about some simple and easy ways to see compatibility and synastry in a Vedic birth chart. And then I am going to use an example, which I'm really excited about. And if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube yet, I will link my YouTube in the descriptions. I did post a segment recently on wealth and power to go along with the podcast I did. I plan on doing another YouTube video on relationship and compatibility. So if that sounds interesting to you, check out the descriptions. Follow me on YouTube for um, the video. I should be posting it next week. That's what I'm going to shoot for. So relationships and compatibility. Again, I'm going to be referring a lot to the Gottman Institute. If you are unfamiliar with Gottman, John Gottman and Julie Gottman are a couple and they have done the most amount of research on relationships more than anybody in the world. And so they have an institute specifically for training counselors and therapists and how to work with couples and help them overcome obstacles. And I'm currently in a training with them. And I've always just been so fascinated with all the research that they've done. And so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is referencing Gottman Institute, their research and what they say. And so with that being said, according to the Gottman Institute, lasting relationships are comprised of a few different components, one of them being love maps. And a love map is described as understanding your partner's inner world. And, you know, I think that this is pretty common sense, like it, it's pretty standard. But if you are in an unhealthy relationship, you may be missing out on this and not even know it. Right. But if you're in a healthy relationship, when you hear me describe this, you're going to be like, well, of course. So a love map is understanding your partner's inner world, knowing who the major players in their life are, like their best friends, their family members, maybe even people at work or around them they don't like. Understanding the major players, you know, superheroes, arch nemesis, etc. It's also understanding your partner's dreams what their ambitions are, what they want to create with their life. And this is an ongoing thing. It's not like while you're dating, you learn about your partner, and then it's all about you. It's an ongoing practice to continue to evolve with your partner and continue to stay up to date on what their love map is. Maybe they you know, lose a friend. Maybe their ambitions change. Maybe their dreams change. It's letting those changes occur, staying up to date on your partner's life and being truly invested in their inner world and understanding. The second thing is going to be affection, fondness, and admiration. 
And so, of course, fondness and admiration, being friends with your partner, truly liking who they are, (laughs) wanting to spend time with them, enjoying yourself when you're around them. And then, of course, the affection piece, demonstrating that admiration in whatever way. You know, we all have our different love languages, but it could be physical affection. It could be gift giving. It could be words of affirmation, extra quality time acts of service, but admiring our partner or partners and demonstrating that admiration. The next thing is mutual respect. If you have mutual respect, it's going to steer away so many of the detrimental attributes I'm going to discuss. If you and your partner respect one another, you are going to speak to each other with respect. You'll handle each other's preferences with respect. If you're having a tiff or an argument, you'll respect each other's boundaries and strive to make reconciliation. Okay, so mutual respect is really, really, really big. We're going to come back to that one. Turning towards bids for connection. And I love this one because it's so subtle, but it makes such a huge impact or it can be subtle. It doesn't necessarily have to be subtle, but it can be. And so a bid for connection could be something bigger like, would you like to go on a date? Would you like to go to the park? Asking your partner flat out, listen, I want time to connect with you. Can we have this time? And taking the bid. When you take bids for connection, it builds trust between individuals. So if someone is asking you to go to the park or go on a date and you're constantly saying no, that is going to deteriorate trust, obviously, right? These are the bigger ones. But then there are smaller bids for connection. So let's say me and my partner are going out for a walk and I'm like, oh my God, look at that squirrel. That's such a cute squirrel. And my partner's like, oh my God, I see that squirrel. It is so cute. (laughs) That was a bid for connection. I'm asking like, look, I'm having this experience. I really want you to join me. My partner hopefully will join me on that bid. Not taking the bid for connection would be, hey, look at that squirrel. Isn't it so cute? And then my partner choosing to say, huh, you know, like the weather is nice today or, you know, so-and-so at works at X, Y, and Z, like totally missing this bid to connect. And so again, it can be super, super subtle. It could be like you guys driving in the car and one of you saying, oh, I listened to the song last weekend. You know, total silence is not taking that bid for connection. Someone saying, oh, you listened to the song. Who were you with? What were you doing? Inquiring because... It's an extension for connection. You're, people say things for a reason. It's not just saying it for the ethers to hear. So it's hearing your partner and trying to attune to them, making sure that they feel heard and seen. Again, these little gestures can do a lot to build trust. The final thing I'll discuss is turning towards instead of away. And I think this one is really, really difficult, especially if you were raised in an environment where you didn't have healthy conflict resolution, if you were in an environment where you were shamed for the way that you felt, or if you were in an argument, it was like a battle you could never win, right? If, you, if you're if you surrounded by these environments, tension and conflict is highly uncomfortable and you just want to get away from it a lot of the time. And so turning towards instead of away is that when there is tension, And when there is conflict, rather than turning away and running or hiding or defending, whatever, 
It's turning towards your partner, asking open-ended questions, trying to understand their feelings, also stating your own feelings, trying to use I statements rather than blaming our partner, saying, when you do this, it makes me feel this way. And again, striving for connection rather than disconnection. Okay, because again, if you were, I really want to stress the compassion I have for those of us who feel the need to turn away during conflict, because that does come from something historical that happened. But now that we're adults, and we are in control of our own lives, we have to learn how to engage in conflict in a healthy way. Because just by virtue of being people, we are going to have conflict. We'll have conflict with our friends. We'll have conflict with our coworkers. We're definitely going to have conflict with our partners. And so because it's such a prevalent and natural and it could be very healthy thing, it doesn't always have to be a horrible, unhealthy thing. Learning how to have healthy conflict, really strong conflict resolution can do so much to save relationship and really build a foundation of trust How we engage in conflict with our partner is going to determine a lot of how we perceive them and most of all, how we trust them. Do we trust them to reconcile with us? It doesn't feel good to be in a relationship with someone who wants to run from conflict or act like it didn't happen. It always feels good to process things, see things from each other's perspective and strive for that understanding. Um, So an example of this could be, let's say my partner invited me to a gathering with their friends, and I'm late. When I get there, my partner is going to say, hey, you know, I invited you to this thing with my friends. It was really important to me that you got here on time, and I feel hurt um, that you were late. Like, what's going on? Turning away would be I could confront them with defensiveness and start defending all of the reasons why I was late. I could even choose to blame them and say, you know, you're the one who always makes me drive over here. This is your fault. I could um, mock them and be like, well, if it wasn't so important to you or, you know, mock their friends, I could choose to do all of these different things as a strategy to defend myself and my lateness. Or I could turn towards my partner and say, hey, I hear that it meant a lot to you for me to be on time. And I'm so sorry that I'm late. You know, I really want to respect you and your friends and your time. And I just lost track of time and I'm going to try to do better in the future. That's a collaborative response to be like, look, I see the way that you're feeling. This was my bad. I was late. You're right. And I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want you to feel disrespected or hurt. I want to try to do better in the future for you and for us, right? So that's kind of a silly example, but that's an example of turning towards trying to collaborate, trying to problem solve rather than turning away, creating a barrier with defensiveness or blame contention. I could just stonewall and totally shut down and not respond. All of that is the opposite of problem solving. It's just going to perpetuate the issue. So again, turning towards instead of away is going to be something to create a long lasting relationship. It's going to help problem solve. It's going to help really build a strong foundation of trust. You can trust your partner to hear your feelings and problem solve with you when things are troubling. 
And so I did also take a few notes on how to build trust in a relationship if this is something that you're working on. I've mentioned a few of them already. And again, this is according to the Gottman Institute, my favorite place ever. How to build trust, listening to the emotions of your partner, paying attention to negative emotions. Just like I was mentioning with the, the example I used on being late. If your partner is sad or upset, or angry, frustrated, rather than questioning your partner, berating them, criticizing them, trying to explain to them why they shouldn't be feeling what they're feeling, it's everything around you stops. You look your partner in the eyes, and you are with them. And you're like, I want to hear what you're feeling and I want to help problem solve with you. And it could be that you just, they're, they just need to be heard. Maybe they don't need you to help them solve their problem, but they need to be heard and they at least need to be validated. I hear that you're feeling frustrated and I totally understand why you would be frustrated. I hear you're feeling angry. Of course you're angry. What happened was so infuriating. Just taking time to hear the negative emotion and validate it. Even, you know, even if it sucks because when our partner is angry, it's not always the most fun thing, but we have to have that empathy because whatever they're experiencing, the negative emotions that they're experiencing is far more uncomfortable than what we're currently experiencing just by being present for it, right? Empathetic listening. Again, the empathetic listening is just hearing, restating, and validating. Commitment. This one's a no-brainer, but some people, you know, you've got to say it. If you're in a relationship that is committed, offering commitment is a very good way to build trust. And then gratitude for what you have. Um, I've unfortunately seen this a lot with people who are in relationships or connections, and they're constantly thinking about where the grass might be greener, or how their partner could be better, or how they could improve, or, you know, really fixating on maybe a negative attribute or something about them that isn't the best. But focusing on gratitude for the positive qualities of your partner or partners, what they bring into your life, how they amplify your life, staying grateful for what is right in front of you. So now that we've discussed how to build a strong relationship and signs of a good relationship, let's talk about the four horsemen. Again, this is from the Gottman Institute. These are the four indicators that the relationship is in trouble and if they are perpetuated can really damage or end a relationship. And this is going to be criticism. When we criticize our partner, when we are critical in general towards our partner and what they're doing, the choices that they make, how they speak, what they like to wear, how they engage in conversation, criticism will deteriorate a relationship over time. Stonewalling. So stonewalling can look different for people, but stonewalling is essentially where we shut down and we refuse to engage. So you might see two people arguing and then one of them just kind of like slumps over, crosses their arms and literally turns around. It could be like a deadpan expression. You're talking to your partner and then suddenly their eyes go dull and they're just staring at you and they're no longer responding. This could be a symbol of many different things. It could be like you're flooded and you don't know what to say. 
you know, emotionally overwhelmed. There could be many different reasons someone stonewalls, but if you stonewall and you shut down and you're no longer engaging with your partner and this is happening regularly, it's the opposite of problem solving. You're tuning out, you're turning away. Defensiveness, as I was mentioning earlier with the being late, rather than taking ownership, defending ourselves chronically. And I'm sure so many of us have experienced people like this, where no matter what is going on, they can't take personal responsibility. They're constantly blaming things around them. It's just hard for them to say, you know what, I messed up, or I did this. And again, I want to have compassion because a lot of the time defensiveness does come from a historical coping strategy for whatever reason. But as adults, we have to learn that when we are engaging intimately with someone else, we have to be ready to take responsibility for our actions. And we have to feel safe in doing that. So if you have a partner who is very defensive and constantly trying to defend themselves, creating a space for them to begin taking ownership without hitting them over the head with a baseball bat, right? Because if we're mad at someone for constantly being defensive, and so they're trying to learn how to take personal responsibility, and one day they're like, hey, you know what? I messed up. I was late. And then you respond with, you know what? You were late. You're always late. Why? You know, re- you respond to them with criticism or attacking them. That's not creating a space for them to feel comfortable in taking personal responsibility. So it's kind of a, it's a two-sided thing. There has to be the person who's willing to take responsibility and escape this pattern of being defensive, but then the partner or partners need to also create the space for them to take personal responsibility and be graceful in that. And so that might look like, you know what? I'm not gonna be defensive. You were right. I was late. I have a habit of being late. I want to work on it. And the partner or partners responding with, thank you so much for seeing that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And, you know, if there's any way that I can support you, let me know. So responding gracefully and with compassion, right? The last of the four horsemen, so we've discussed criticism, stonewalling, defensiveness, is contempt, And this is the worst of them all. This is the highest indicator of divorce. And when you're operating from a place of contempt, this could look like mocking your partner, mimicking your partner, talking to them with complete disrespect or disregard. It could look like name calling, eye rolling, Uh, body language that is just disrespectful it could be it's it's really operating from a place of superiority um, and a place of I'm better than you you know you're you're not as good as I am and this one is just so nasty you know and it can really work its way into relationships that have been going downhill for a while if you've been in a relationship that um yeah, has just been having trouble and individuals start losing respect for one another, contempt can kind of leak through the cracks. And it's definitely repairable. 
And I'm not going to go into that because I don't want the segment to be super, super long. Contempt is definitely repairable. If you have these things in the relationship, it does not by any means mean it's the end of the relationship. It doesn't mean that it can't be fixed or solved, but it is something you want to take a look at. If there is any of the signs of disrespect and a loss of appreciation for one another, just taking note of it um, and keeping an eye on it because it is the biggest indicator of divorce according to Gottman Institute, which is really significant. So I hope that those things were helpful. Again, if you want to keep an eye on the four horsemen in your relationship, it's going to be criticism, stonewalling, contempt, and defensiveness. Wanting to try to steer clear of those things in relationships, operating from a place of love, admiration, and respect. And that's going to do a lot to kind of steer away the four horsemen. So moving into the Vedic astrology bit after 21 minutes, this is going to be a lot longer than I expected. Um, when you are looking at synastry and compatibility in a relationship, it always starts with the self. So take time to assess your own chart. Get a feel for your own chart. Look at your seventh house. The seventh house is going to give an indication into the types of people you're attracted to, how you operate in relationship, and what type of people you may pull into your orbit. So if you have planets in the seventh house, this is going to tell you a lot about how you operate in relationship. And I'm not going to go too far into this, but I just want to say make sure that when you're studying your own chart, you have a firm understanding of the types of partners you look for and how you may operate in love. If you have Saturn in the seventh, you're going to have to be with a partner who's mature, probably older than you. You're going to be very serious in love, very committed in love. If you have Mercury in the seventh, you might need a partner who's a little bit younger or at least more playful and um kind of dual natured, you know, but Mercury is typically a youthful person, but also very intellectually stimulating. So you're going to need a partner who you can connect with on an intellectual level. So seeing if there are planets in the seventh, understanding them, it's going to give you an indication of what type of partner to look out for. And more importantly, how you operate in love and tendencies in love. Okay. When you are comparing your birth chart to somebody else's birth chart, and we could do this with many people, for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to talk about it with two people just because that does keep it simple. But please keep in mind, you can do this for polyamorous relationships or relationships with more than one person. Okay. But you know, you are going to be comparing charts. And so when you're comparing these charts, you're going to want to see if there are planets in the same sign, this is the sinistry and the glue of the relationship. When there are planets that are in the same sign between birth charts, there does seem to be a mutual understanding that comes with these placements. Really good planets to look for when assessing sinistry are going to be the moon the sun and Venus. These are the personal planets. And if these planets are supported in synastry, it's going to do a lot to glue the relationship together and bring this understanding and appreciation. It could also be that the moon and sun are opposing. It could be that 
Venus is an opposite signs. Sun is an opposite signs. So the opposition of planets can indicate compatibility, but also them being in the same sign. So let's say your moon is in Aries at 15 degrees and you meet someone with moon in Aries in like 16 degrees or whatever. There's going to be a mutual understanding. You guys are going to feel naturally um, drawn to one another because you think in a similar way. If your moon is at, let's say, 20 degrees of Pisces, your moon is at 20 degrees of Pisces, and you meet someone with Venus at 20 degrees of Pisces, this is very good for synastry. So if we're looking at Venus, moon, or sun, and any of these three planets are in the same sign by a few degrees, this is excellent for compatibility. So let's say your sun is at 10 degrees of Libra, and you meet someone whose Venus is at 11 degrees of Libra, or their moon or sun is at 11 degrees of Libra. This is all really, really nice. So paying attention to the degrees is also very important. And I am going to be discussing this on the YouTube video I plan to create. Um, so looking at these three planets, they don't all have to be in the same sign. But noticing if there is any overlap between the two charts or if they're opposing. So if your moon is in Aquarius and this person's Venus is in Leo. If your sun is in Scorpio and their Venus is in Taurus. If your moon is in, what sign haven't I used yet? If your moon is in Gemini and their sun, moon, or Venus is in Sagittarius. The opposite can also do a lot to create an attraction. Um, so try to keep that in mind. Those are the three personal planets, but there are also other indicators to look for. If someone's Mercury and Moon are in the same sign, this can do a lot to create a friendliness. If your Mercuries are in the same sign, it's going to bring really positive communication and understanding. If the Jupiter and Moon in the same are in the same sign, if someone's Jupiter is in Leo and then somebody else's Moon is in Leo, it could do a lot to create a light-hearted, fun nature, a lot of optimism. So jupiter and moon in the same sign it could also be uh opposing jupiters i've seen this be really nice for relationships and also friendships so if someone's jupiter is in aquarius and someone else's jupiter is in leo if someone's jupiter is in aries someone else's jupiter is in libra the opposing Jupiter can also be really nice. Um, and then, of course, Jupiter and Moon in the same sign. I can't emphasize enough how nice that is for compatibility. The karmic nodes. If Rahu and Ketu are in the same rising sign as your partner. So let's say you're a Libra ascendant and your partner has Rahu or Ketu in Libra. This is going to bring a lot of karmic pull to one another. Let's say your Rahu or Ketu is in Gemini and your partner's ascendant is Gemini. This is again, because if your Ketu is on their ascendant, that means your Rahu is in their seventh house of relationships or vice versa. So when the karmic nodes of Rahu and Ketu come into the ascendant or the seventh house of the partner's birth chart. This is a very strong indicator of 
um, karmic influence. But look at the degrees, because this is when things get super interesting. Let's say someone's ascendant is eight degrees of Gemini, and your K2 is eight degrees of Gemini. That's when things really start getting turned up is when the degrees are close. And I'm going to show you this in the um, example I have for today. The final thing I'm going to mention when looking at synastry and compatibility in a birth chart are the karmic nodes of Rahu and K2, and then the personal planets of Sun, Moon, and Venus. I did a video on synastry and compatibility last year, I think. It may have been in 2019. If you go to my YouTube channel, it's the first video I ever posted. I pull up like 10 charts of couples in Hollywood so many of them have a connection between Venus and K2 or Moon and K2, uh, Sun and Rahu, like karmic nodes in these personal planets. It's amazing to see. It's just so, so, so cool. I highly recommend look, watching that video. But let's say your K2 is in Sagittarius. And your partner's moon is in Sagittarius. It's going to bring this karmic past life influence. What I've seen is that when someone's K2 is overlapping someone's moon, Venus, or sun. So again, if someone's K2 is in Sagittarius and then someone's sun, moon, or Venus is in Sagittarius, this creates like this past life understanding. When you meet this person, it feels comfortable. It's like you've known them forever. It's a very comfortable feeling from what I've experienced and also from what I've seen. Pay attention to the degree points. The closer the degrees, the more influential. I've also seen this happen with Rahu, but it is a little bit different of a sensation. If your Rahu is in, let's say, Taurus, your Rahu is in Taurus, and your partner's Sun, Moon, or Venus is in Taurus, this is going to bring a very, very strong kinetic attraction. I mean, very, very powerful. It could even feel a little obsessive. If Rahu is on the moon, especially if it's close in degrees, this could bring about some anxiety as well in the relationship. Doesn't mean it's the end of the relationship, but it could bring, it's a little bit less comfortable than the K2. It's going to be a little bit more um, movement of the mind. It might, again, I don't want to say obsessed, but it could bring like a, um, a little unsettled feeling, like a lot of excitement. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of energy. And when there's excitement and energy, there's not so much rest. Okay. So you might just feel kind of, um, keyed up a little bit, even if you like it. So just keep an eye out for that. Rahu and Venus is incredible attraction. Rahu and the sun can do a lot for somebody's um, image, how they appear in the outer world. When two people come together, if someone's Rahu is in Aries and someone's sun is in Aries, it could amplify the image of these people in the outer world. Because Rahu and sun in a birth chart can do a lot to create material gains and notoriety. Um, a lot of famous people have this conjunction. So when it comes together in synastry, it can kind of create a similar effect. It almost amplifies the couple's image in the outer world. Um, so keep an eye out for that. When Ketu or Rahu is in the same sign 
as a partner's Venus, Moon, or Sun, it's pretty significant. Or in the first house and seventh house. And so on Instagram, I posted asking if anyone had an example of a relationship that I could look at because I always look at the same relationships. You know, I like having um, people give me suggestions, couples who I wouldn't have thought about. And so a very wonderful listener of Astrology Now reached out and gave me a recommendation. So special shout out to Mana Yitri. You are wonderful. Thank you for suggesting this couple. I immediately pulled them up and saw the main indicators of compatibility that I like to see in birth charts. So it was a perfect example. And so Mana Yitri suggested that I look at the birth charts of Ted Danson and Mary Steenbergen. And so they've been married for ever. They were recently on a magazine cover for love and relationships, which we discovered after he made the suggestion to me, which made me laugh. Um, but when I pulled up their charts, first of all, Ted Danson has a super solid birth time. So his birth chart is absolutely correct. Mary Steenbergen, I could not find a correct birth time. But the cool thing about synastry is that having the birth time always helps, but you can still do a lot without having the correct birth time, especially if you have at least one of their birth times. And so the first thing that I noticed is that Ted Danson's moon is at 19 degrees of cancer. Okay, so his moon is in the sign of cancer. It's at 19 degrees. When I look at Mary Steenbergen's chart, her K2 is at 19 degrees of cancer. It was exactly what I was talking to you guys about. If K2 or Rahu is on a personal planet, moon, sun or venus it's going to be significant the closer in degrees the more powerful his moon and her k2 are in the exact same degree of cancer indicating this past life connection they're going to feel comfortable it's going to feel like they've known each other forever it's pretty significant the next thing that i notice is that ted danson's venus is at 13 degrees of capricorn Okay, his Venus is at 13 degrees of Capricorn. Her Rahu is at 19 degrees of Capricorn. And then her sun is at 26 degrees of Capricorn. It's exactly what I've been talking about. We're taking the personal planets of Venus, Sun, and Moon. Her Venus is in Capricorn. Or excuse me, his Venus is in Capricorn. Her sun is in Capricorn. And then her Rahu is also in Capricorn when Rahu and Venus are in the same signs in two people's charts, right? So like if one person's Rahu is in a sign, the other person's Venus is in the same sign, it's going to create a very strong attraction um, and it's going to be very karmic. So again, Mary's time is unknown, but she brings two planets into his seventh house. So Ted Danson is a Virgo ascendant. That means that Pisces is in his seventh house of relationship. Mary has Mars and Venus in the sign of Pisces, bringing an exalted Venus into his seventh house along with Mars, which is going to bring a lot of really powerful attraction and, you know, relationship energy. Her moon is in Scorpio. Again, I don't know the exact degree because I don't know what time of day she was born. But her moon is in the sign of Scorpio. His Jupiter 
is in the sign of Scorpio. If you remember earlier, I was saying if someone's Jupiter and moon are in the same sign, this is excellent for optimism, expansion, happiness, feel good, feel good emotions. The final thing I'll say is that Ted Danson's, let's see, his Rahu is in Aries and Mary's Jupiter is in Aries. So Jupiter and Rahu are in the same sign of Aries, expanded optimism, expanded happiness and um, gratitude, right? Jupiter is going to bring a sense of gratitude, gracefulness, generosity. It's such a powerful planet to have good synastry with. So Jupiter on the moon, Jupiter with Rahu, these are both really, really nice. So I hope that this segment was helpful. I hope that you feel like you learned something new about relationship and compatibility in Vedic astrology and some positive indicators of a relationship and maybe some more negative things to watch out for and steer clear of to make sure that your relationship or relationships say very supported and growth oriented. If you would like to schedule a reading with me or a compatibility reading with me, you can email me at astrologynowpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit my website and schedule yourself at innerknowing.yoga. Please follow Astrology Now's Instagram, astrologynow underscore podcast. And I would love to see you on Patreon, patreon.com slash astrologynowpodcast. Again, my name is Christine Rodriguez. This is Astrology Now. Thank you so much. 